Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 5, Side 1. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. In May 1841, Governor William H. Seward signed such a bill, and a month later the Vigilance Committee held a victory celebration at Asbury Church. The presiding officer, Charles B. Ray, hailed the measure for sweeping clean from the statute books the last vestiges of slavery in the state. But the law was not firmly enforced at the outset, and before it could prove itself, it was nullified by a Supreme Court decision, Prigg v. Pennsylvania, 1842, giving Congress the exclusive right to enforce the fugitive slave law. Negroes in Boston and Detroit had all Negro vigilance groups, although neither had as dramatic a figure as Ruggles. Founded in Boston in 1842 and lasting for five years, the New England Freedom Association aimed to extend a helping hand to all who may bid adieu to whips and chains. It solicited donations of money or clothing for the fugitives and places of residence, temporary or permanent, and advertised in the abolitionist press for persons who would give them jobs. Two of its seven directors were women. Founded in the same year as its Boston counterpart, the Colored Vigilance Committee of Detroit was headed first by William Lambert and then by George Dubaptiste. In the absence of competing white abolitionist organizations, the Detroit group maintained an independent existence until the Civil War, reaching its peak in the mid-50s. In one two-week period in 1854, the committee gave assistance to 53 freedom-bound blacks, a figure which grew to 1,043 for the period from May 1, 1855 to January 1, 1856. Cleveland had an all-colored committee of nine, of whom four were women, which sped 275 slaves to Canada from April 1854 to January 1855. In Boston and New York, the all-Negro vigilance groups were succeeded by racially mixed prototypes. In Boston, in September 1846, a committee of vigilance was formed by Samuel Gridley Howe, following public indignation over the return of a slave who had secreted himself on a vessel bound from New Orleans to Boston. The committee included Robert Morris and William C. Nell, along with many prominent white reformers and literary figures. For example, Ralph Waldo Emerson sent word that if the economic well-being of Massachusetts depended upon making Boston a slave port, he would willingly forego such prosperity and turn to the mountains to chop wood. The Boston Committee of Vigilance performed its most conspicuous services in the early 1850s, following the passage of the Fugitive State Law. New York City was the headquarters of another racially mixed group to assist the runaway slave, the New York State Vigilance Committee. 
Founded in 1847 with the Quaker Isaac T. Hopper as president, but with a membership over 50% Negro, the committee assisted 166 fugitives during its first six months. In 1848, the committee was reorganized with white philanthropist Garrett Smith as president and Charles B. Ray as corresponding secretary. One of the committee's accomplishments during its first year was the instigation of action in the federal courts in nine cases in which a person was held as a slave in a slave state even though he was entitled to his freedom by the laws of the state. From January 1851 to April 1853, the committee assisted 686 former slaves, many of whom received little more than periodic counseling but of whom 38 were freed after being brought into New York City by their reputed masters. Upstate New York had two interracial slave-assisting organizations, although the one in Albany might well have been called the Myers Vigilance Committee. Its guiding spirit, Stephen Myers, held few meetings, although he acted in the name of the committee. That Myers was able and honest muted any criticism. At Syracuse, the abolitionists founded the Fugitive Aid Society, with Germaine W. Loguen as its manager. Engaged in helping runaways since 1850, Loguen devoted full time to the work beginning in 1857. He wrote letters to the local newspapers, urging their readers to hire fugitives in their shops and on their farms. How many jobs he found for the more than 300 slaves that passed through his hand cannot be known but it earned for Syracuse the title of the Canada of the United States. Loguen's good work in Syracuse was overshadowed only by that of William Still in Philadelphia, the secretary of the General Vigilance Committee. This organization had a predecessor, the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, which was founded in 1838 and was in existence six years. This parent group was interracial on paper, Eleven of the thirteen members of the first so-called standing committee were whites. But the president was Purvis, and the agent, executive secretary, was another Negro, Jacob C. White. After 1839, the monthly meetings were no longer attended by whites, so that the committee was all Negro in its operations and increasingly Negro in its personnel. This committee assisted some 300 fugitives a year, its high for one week, the first week in September 1842, running to 26. It dispatched the fugitives to Canada or to David Ruggles in New York. The committee expired in 1844, although many of the former members, Purvis, White, J.J.G. Bias, Daniel Payne, and Stephen H. Gloucester among them, continued to assist slaves in an individual capacity. The successor of this pioneer organization, the General Vigilance Committee, was more consistently interracial. Robert Purvis was made chairman of the new organization, seven of whose 19 founders were Negroes. But most importantly, black William Still was made chairman of the four-member acting committee, thus becoming the executive secretary of the organization and its dominant figure. A more resourceful and hard-working operator could hardly have been found. The full scope of Still's activities may be gleaned from his 780-page work, The Underground Railroad, published in 1872. In this fact-crammed, semi-documentary work, Still reproduced scores of letters from workers in the field, such as Joseph C. Bustill from Harrisburg describing the beginnings of the local Fugitive Aid Society.
still exchanged fruitful letters with such white supporters and colleagues as Thomas Garrett in Wilmington, Sidney Howard Gay in New York, Levi Coffin in Cincinnati, and Hiram Wilson at St. Catharines in Canada. Still received scores of letters from fugitives he had helped, such as the one John J. Hill sent from Toronto. I am as free as your President Pierce, only I have not been free so long. It is true that I have to work very hard for comfort, but I am happy, happy. The General Vigilance Committee aided hundreds of black bondmen, the number running to 495 from December 1852 to February 1857. But the episode that Still was least likely to forget was the delivery of Henry Brown, shipped in a box from Richmond to Philadelphia by Adams Express. When the shipment reached the anti-slavery office, Still, one of the four receiving agents, pried off the lid. Whereupon the marvelous resurrection of Brown ensued, wrote the author in the Underground Railroad. Rising up in his box, he reached out his hand, saying, How do you do, gentlemen? It was well that Underground Railroad work had its rewards, for there was no lack of problems, a need for funds ranking first. As in the case of all other anti-slavery operations, money was in short supply. The three major sources were Negroes, a sprinkling of whites, and a core of women's groups on both sides of the Atlantic. Negro giving was fair to good. The $284 raised by the New York Vigilance Committee from January 1, 1839 to May 23rd of the same year came almost wholly from Negroes. The racial identity of one of its donors in 1837 could hardly be mistaken. George Jones, who had contributed $12.50, was dragged to slavery by an order from our city recorder, according to the committee's first annual report. Many members of the committee pledged themselves to contribute 50 cents a month, and in cases of dire need, the members advanced money out of their own pockets. At its annual meetings, the committee passed the hat, the average collection running to $75. In Detroit, the bulk of the money of the Vigilance Committee seems to have come from collections taken up at meetings, particularly at call meetings growing out of quick-breaking incidents. Some of the funds of the Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia came from small donors, 52 of them contributing a total of $96 from September 11, 1839 to January 13, 1840. This committee also solicited from Negro churches, and it held soirees, raising $42 at one of these held in June 1841. At Rochester, the Negroes systematically aided their hunted brethren, wrote William C. Nell to William Lloyd Garrison on February 19, 1852, having just held a donation festival on their behalf. At Syracuse in January 1859, the manager of the Fugitive Aid Society, Jermaine W. Loguen, received a financial contribution from 30 of the escaped slaves for whom he had gotten jobs, some of them adding a personal gift to him such as an engraved sugar spoon or butter knife. To put something into its ever-exhausted treasury, the New England Freedom Association sponsored juvenile concerts, charging a small fee at the door. On one desperate Sunday in August 1846, the association sent delegates to five of the colored churches in Boston, succeeding in raising a total of $23. Some of the support of the vigilant groups came from white donors. 
In 1840, the New York Committee received $25 from Arthur Tappan and $10 from John Rankin, both New York merchant abolitionists. At Albany, Stephen Myers could operate independently of his committee because he had only to call upon three wealthy whites for whatever monies he needed. Upon assuming the presidency of the New York State Vigilance Committee in 1848, Garrett Smith authorized the committee to draw upon him for $500 for the year's operations. On occasion, a collection for underground railroad operations might be taken up at an abolitionist gathering. Harriet Tubman receiving $37 from such a source at Framingham, Massachusetts, in July 1858. Raising money for fugitive slave assistance had its appeal for wives and mothers. In New York, the Negro women held annual fairs at the Broadway Tabernacle for the benefit of the Vigilance Committee. An admission fee of twelve and a half cents was charged, thus guarding against a poor sale of the useful and fancy articles on display. Many of the women who conducted the fair also worked for the committee by collecting a penny a week from friends. At Syracuse, a group of women busied themselves in soliciting food, clothing, and money, channeling their collections to J.W. Loguen. The women of Philadelphia outstripped all others in the work. Over a four-year span, the Colored Women's Association made donations for fugitive slave work, giving fifty dollars in 1851. The earlier vigilance committee had a short-lived women's auxiliary, from which it received ten dollars in 1839. The interracial Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society generally dipped into its treasury after receiving a touching appeal from the committee, usually to the effect that it had on hand a group of fugitives ready to move northward, but had no funds to get them on the road. The society sent twenty dollars in September 1841. Fifty dollars in January 1842 and ten dollars in January 1843, and an additional twenty-five dollars later that year. In May 1845, the society gave ten dollars to one of its members, Hester Reckless, to assist fugitives following her plea on their behalf. Women in the British Isles lent a sisterly hand in the work. Beginning in 1852, the year of its founding. The Glasgow Female New Association for the Abolition of Slavery held an annual bazaar for the New York Vigilance Committee, designating it as the principal recipient of its funds. The New York group also received grants of fifty dollars each from the women in Dundee and Edinburgh in both 1857 and 1858. The Rochester Friends of the Fugitive received one hundred dollars in 1857 from the Edinburgh Ladies' New Anti-Slavery Association. The Philadelphia Vigilance Committee received remittances from the women of Dundee and Newcastle on Tyne, the latter through Anna D. Richardson, who in 1846 had been instrumental in raising $700 to purchase the freedom of Frederick Douglass. In the spring of 1858, the Philadelphia Committee and Thomas Garrett in Wilmington each received $50 from Eliza Wigham on behalf of the Edinburgh Ladies' Emancipation Society. The work of Loguen at Syracuse drew support from women's anti-slavery groups throughout Great Britain: Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Berwick-on-Tweed, Halifax, Liverpool, Barnsley, and Huddersfield. The women from the land of Daniel O'Connell were not to be left out. The Irish Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, sending Loguen seventy-three dollars in February 1859. 
for the benefit of fugitives coming to his house in Syracuse. It is possible that over the five-year span from 1855 to 1860, Loguin received from the women in the British Isles some $400 a year, a sum which perhaps equaled their combined contributions to the other fugitive aid societies in the United States during the period. Hundreds of women, British and American, white and black, gave sacrificially to help the fugitive slave. But their efforts fell short of the need, this phase of the abolitionist crusade sharing with the others a chronic lack of funds. The modest salaries of the full-time agent were generally in arrears. Elections were slow, and only the zeal of the workers kept the work going on as fruitfully as it did. But even the most dedicated worker might have felt a bit dispirited over the plight of the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, which, as of November 11, 1841, reported that its funds were gone, that it was in debt, and that its total collections over the past month had been a bundle of clothes, two hats, and a bonnet. Resources that were badly needed to help the fugitive from the South went sometimes to unworthy recipients those who pretended to be runaways or their relatives. Since a fugitive aroused sympathy and received aid, it is not surprising that a small corps of impersonators sprang up. Most impostors claimed themselves to be slaves. Others put forth the more modest honor of being a slave's relative, husband, father, son, or brother, whose freedom they were allegedly raising money to effect. During the first week of December, 1839, the Philadelphia Committee of Vigilance turned down the requests of two men claiming to be slaves, although one of them looked so woebegone that the committee relented and gave him $20 and some food. Generally, the warnings against detected impostors were to be found in the columns of the anti-slavery journals. At Hartford, in the summer of 1845, James W.C. Pennington advised the public to be on guard against one James Thompson, who was passing himself off as a slave from Lynchburg, Virginia. Early in 1850, the abolitionists of New York City were alerted about one William Johnson, an alleged fugitive in search of his alleged spouse. Johnson was all the more reprehensible for having recently deserted a real wife. Late in 1855, an anti-slavery weekly gave a personal description of one O.C. Gilbert, who was pocketing monies he collected for fugitives. Gilbert was a large, robust man, five feet nine inches, of dark brown hue, practically bald and quite bow-legged. Let all the papers pass him around, ran the warning. In January 1858, the inhabitants of Middlesex County, Massachusetts, were warned against a short, slender, light mulatto of 22 who called himself George Thompson. Namesake of the British abolitionist, this strolling knave, George Thompson, had already collected $15 from sympathizers in Lemonster. Abolitionists were advised that George was a reckless liar, varying his story according to circumstances. The breed was not unknown in England, Reuben Nixon spending a jail term for falsely soliciting funds as a fugitive. Elizabeth Buffum Chase, a Quaker at Valley Falls, Rhode Island, encountered only two known impostors in her long career of helping runaways. But one of these impersonators turned out to have been a hardened criminal. 
The gentlemanly, light-colored, handsome man she had protected for ten weeks from the slave catchers allegedly trailing him turned out to be an escapee from the New York State Prison at Auburn. Mrs. Chase might have been forgiven, confessing that she had been impressed by his great desire to learn our ideas about right and wrong and for the improvement of himself in all directions. Abolitionist weeklies often advised their readers to be less credulous when approached by someone claiming to be a runaway. Some fugitive aid societies were hesitant about giving assistance unless the alms seeker could produce a certificate of identification from friends or acquaintances in the border states. But such a precaution could have had little real effect. The counterfeiting of certificates of freedom, free papers, was common in underground railroad operations. Hence, a person who chose to become an impostor would have found it no real obstacle to borrow this technique and proceed to acquire forged letters of introduction. To the friends of the fugitive slave, there was one class more hated than the impostors, and this was the informers, those who could be bribed to reveal the whereabouts of a runaway. Levi Coffin, head of the Underground Railroad at Cincinnati, found that not all Negroes were to be trusted in fugitive slave operations. But such a group of betrayers of the slave remained very small, in part because of the adverse publicity given them, and in part due to more forceful action. Dating from its origin, the Negro press printed the names of black informants, Freedom's Journal listing those of Moses Smith, formerly of Baltimore, and Nathan Gooms of New York in its issue of November 7, 1828. The mere appearance of these names in the columns of the weekly was a sufficient deterrent to the other informers whose identity the editors threatened to reveal. When Martin R. Delaney was editor of the Pittsburgh Mystery, he was sued on two occasions for charging Negroes with having assisted the slave catchers. A Negro who assisted the slave catchers ran the risk of bodily harm, as two of this ilk found out in Cincinnati. Robert Russell decoyed a fugitive to a wharf where he was seized by his master's agents. But before Russell could enjoy his informant's fee of $10, he was tarred and feathered by a group of young Negro men. In August 1858, two runaways were betrayed by John Brody, who had promised to assist them in returning to Covington, Kentucky, to effect the liberation of relatives. Brody's treachery nearly cost him his life. He was seized by a group of Negroes who proceeded to give him 300 blows with a paddle, a stroke for each dollar he was supposed to have received from the slave catchers. Only the presence of the influential Henry Highland Garnet saved Brody from further punishment. The badly mauled informer delivered himself to the police authorities to be placed in jail for safekeeping. In Jefferson County, Indiana, an informer was whipped within an inch of his life. During the court trial, it was impossible to get any Negro to testify against his floggers. Telltale Negroes were dealt with harshly because underground railroad work was hazardous enough as it was. Whether black or white, in the North or South, the benefactor of a fugitive slave ran a variety of risks. Imprisonment was an ever-present threat to those whose theater of activity included the slave states, as some Negro operators could ruefully attest. For journeying into the South to recruit runaways, Samuel D. Burris was placed in jail at Dover, Delaware, for 14 months. 
He was then auctioned off as a slave to serve for seven years, but his abolitionist friends arranged to have him purchased by a dummy. Elijah Anderson of Indiana died in 1857 at the state prison in Frankfort, Kentucky, where he was serving a term for conducting fugitive slaves across the state line. For the same offense and at the same penitentiary, Oswald Wright of Corydon, Indiana, served a five-year term. Samuel Green, a local Methodist preacher at Dorchester County, Maryland, who attracted public attention upon receiving a sentence of ten years for possessing a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, was actually being punished for his suspected aid to fugitives, the original reason that brought the search party to his house. David Ruggles, executive secretary of the New York Committee of Vigilance, had to stay on the alert, lest any attempt be made to assault him. He took the precaution of changing his lodgings periodically, but this did not save him late one night in January 1837 when a small group attempted to force open his door, possibly with kidnapping in mind. In 1838, Ruggles was jailed for two days on the charge that he had harbored Thomas Hughes, a slave charged with felony. At Columbus, Pennsylvania, Negro businessmen William Whipper and Stephen Smith risked no bodily harm or jail sentence for secreting slaves, but two attempts were made to set fire to their lumber yard. Whites who were made to suffer for assisting fugitives received public expressions of sympathy and esteem from Negroes. Amos Dresser, who had received a public whipping in Nashville in 1836, allegedly for distributing abolitionist literature, received a different reception later that year at Theodore S. Wright's Presbyterian Church and at a crowded call meeting of the New York Committee of Vigilance. Daniel Drayton of the schooner Pearl, who spent over four years in jail for making arrangements to smuggle 77 slaves from Washington to New York in April 1843, was an honored name among Negroes. The Colored Ladies' Anti-Slavery Sewing Circle of Canandaigua sent him $7 and an effusive letter, the latter described as being exceedingly gratifying to the feelings of Captain Drayton. In New Haven, at the Temple Street Church of Amos G. Beeman, he spoke to an overflow audience, many of whom purchased copies of his personal memoirs. Perhaps there was a touch of self-guilt in the attitude of Negroes toward Drayton, a colored informer having been a contributing factor in his capture. For assisting runaways, Calvin Fairbanks served two prison terms, totaling nearly 17 years. His first stay came to an end in August 1849, when Lewis Hayden, the former slave whose escape had led to Fairbanks' arrest, raised $650 from 160 donors to pay Hayden's owners, who thereupon joined in the petition for a pardon for Fairbank. Detroit Negroes, led by George Dubaptiste, took up a collection for Fairbank upon his release. In less than three years, however, Fairbank was back in a Kentucky jail, again for aiding a fugitive. This time he remained behind bars until late in the Civil War, in the meantime, sending letters to Frederick Douglass and others addressed from Louisville Jail. The fugitive slave movement had its martyr in Charles T. Torrey, who died in a Maryland penitentiary in May 1846. A clergyman abolitionist who felt compelled to live out his convictions about the brotherhood of man, 
Tory worshipped only in Negro churches while in Washington in the winter of 1841. From his base at Baltimore, Tory helped to speed some 400 runaways on the road to freedom over a two-year span. But in 1844, he was charged by a Winchester, Virginia master with helping his slaves escape, and the court sentenced him to six years at hard labor. At Boston, a Tory meeting of Negroes took up a collection of $30 for their jailed friend and called upon the abolitionists in general and the Negroes in particular to rally to his aid. Detroit's black reformers gathered at the First Colored Baptist Church to offer prayers for him. Tory's death in May 1846 brought from Negroes many expressions of grief, mingled with indignation and purpose. At Oberlin, the colored citizens adopted a series of resolutions drafted and read by William H. Day, tendering sympathy to Tory's wife and children, and condemning the governor of Maryland for not having pardoned him so that he might have breathed his last among his native hills. Boston Negroes, meeting in Zion Church on June 15, 1846, voted to erect a monument to Tory and invited the cooperation of colored people throughout New England. On July 31, 1846, the Negroes of the city held a service at Tremont Temple in honor of Tory, with eulogies by John T. Hilton, William C. Nell, Joshua B. Smith, Henry Whedon, former slaves Samuel Snowden and Lewis Hayden, and a visiting speaker, Methodist minister Lucius C. Matlack, a friend of Tory's. Meeting the next day at an August 1st celebration, the colored people of Providence passed a resolution in favor of the Tory Monument proposal made by the Boston Negroes. But the Tory Monument Association received very few contributions, Garrison having expressed the opinion that abolitionist money might be put to better use. The absence of such a stone did not keep Negroes from visiting Tory's grave at Mount Auburn Cemetery at Cambridge, Massachusetts, Daniel Payne making a trip there in the summer of 1850. During the four months he spent in the Moya Memsing prison in 1855, Passmore Williamson of Philadelphia evoked the sympathy of Negroes throughout the North. Williamson, a member of the General Vigilance Committee, was charged with contempt of court for having refused to reveal the whereabouts of three slaves whom he had persuaded to leave their master, no less a personage than the United States Minister to Nicaragua, John H. Wheeler. In truth, Williamson did not know the whereabouts of Jane Johnson and her two boys, Daniel and Isaiah, inasmuch as they had been spirited from the wharf by William Still and five Negro porters. Still and his accomplices were brought to trial, two of them, John Ballard and William Curtis, receiving a week in jail for assault and battery on Colonel Wheeler. While the trial of the six black rescuers was going on, Williamson remained behind bars, but he received hundreds of letters and scores of visitors. Among the latter was a five-man delegation, George T. Downing, Stephen Myers, Robert Purvis, Charles Lennox Remond, and John S. Rock from the Colored National Convention, which was meeting in Philadelphia in mid-October, 1855. The delegates reported that Williamson had assured them that he would not sacrifice a single principle on the altar of slavery. A month later, the high-minded Quaker was triumphantly acquitted, 
his case having been greatly strengthened by Jane's testimony that, in the language of the court record, she had willingly left the boat, aided in the departure by several colored persons, who took her children with her consent and led or carried them off the boat and conducted your petitioner and her children to a carriage a short distance from the boat. The friends of the fugitive included a small corps of lawyers, and to these two the Negroes found a way to express their gratitude. At Bethel Church in February 1841, a group representing the colored citizens of Philadelphia gave a set of silver plates to David Paul Brown for his services in defending runaways. At Cincinnati, Sam and P. Chase regularly defended fugitives, receiving no fees for his services but acquiring a silver pitcher from the city's grateful blacks. In July 1851, attorneys E.C. Larned and George Manier each received a silver cup from the colored citizens of Chicago as a token of high regard for their successful services on behalf of Moses Johnson, an alleged fugitive. For their legal services in the Shadrach rescue case in 1851, Richard Henry Dana and John P. Hale received from the Negroes of Boston an eight-volume set of Henry Hallam's Constitutional History of England, which, as the donors pointed out, was a history marked by the progress of free institutions and by the virtue of courage of great lawyers. Both recipients sent gracious replies, Dana stating that the set gave him a feeling of pride and gratification, and Hale saying that he would cherish his set while he lived and bequeath it to his family when he was gone. To a Negro abolitionist, few things could be so satisfying as helping a runaway. But the great majority of black leaders felt that there was a complementary work to be done, one that would not only strike at slavery, but would simultaneously elevate the free Negro. This was the use of political power, getting the ballot and putting it to the proper use. Chapter 8. The Politics of Freedom Political power is a mighty anti-slavery engine. We hold that all true abolitionists should go to the polls and vote. Colored American, August 17, 1839 The right to vote never loomed so large to Negroes as in the two decades before the Civil War. Through political action, slavery might be rooted out and equal justice brought into play. A Negro electorate could give needed support to anti-slavery men and measures in Congress. Fairer treatment of the Negro could be gotten locally if white legislators had to reckon with a colored constituency. But the Negro who wished to vote faced a sea of troubles. The great friend of the colored man, William Lloyd Garrison, decried politics, holding that the Constitution was pro-slavery and that all who took an oath of office to support it were ridden with the virus. But Garrison's theories of non-voting and disunion were maintained by only a handful of Negro leaders. Robert Purvis held fast to the Garrisonian viewpoints, crying in May 1857 that the United States government was one of the baddest, meanest, most atrocious despotisms that ever saw the face of the sun. During the same month, Charles Lennox Raymond, in a debate with Frederick Douglass at Shiloh Church in New York, argued that the Constitution was pro-slavery. 
But in 1848, Ramond had temporarily abandoned his non-voting stance when he cast a ballot for Stephen C. Phillips, free soil candidate for governor, justifying his action on the grounds that Phillips had favored larger appropriations for Negro schools. If the great majority of Negroes could not support Garrison's views on politics, they could sympathize with his single-minded devotion to the principle of non-voting. But what left them unsympathetic and stirred up was the lukewarm reaction toward Negro suffrage that characterized the majority of the voting abolitionists. Ahead of their times in some important respects, the abolitionists nonetheless were in the main much like other Americans of their day when it came to political equality for the Negro. The freedom of the slave, yes. But to stand at the polls on a par with the black man, this was another matter. The friends of the colored people took part in anti-slavery work as a matter of duty, wrote the San Francisco correspondent of Frederick Douglass Weekly, but they were no more likely to believe that Negroes were naturally equal to whites than they were to believe that chalk was cheese. Many white abolitionists shared the common belief that political equality would lead inevitably to social equality something for which they were not ready. Another discouragement for the vote-minded Negro was the legal barrier. By 1860, equal suffrage existed only in New England, excluding Connecticut. In the remaining states, the Negro was barred outright from the polls, or, as in New York, faced with a property requirement. Colored men found their exclusion particularly galling since it came during a period in which voting rights were being expanded. In many states, the political disenfranchisement of the black man took place almost simultaneously with the removal of all barriers for white men. This conferring of the ballot upon the white working man brought a special problem to the Negro, for it added to the electorate a class which opposed his advancement. The white mechanics and workers in the North feared the Negro as a labor competitor, and this fear was well known to politicians. Increasingly, therefore, the voteless black man became a whipping boy for office seekers pandering to race prejudice. In 1855, a Negro San Franciscan likened the colored people of California to a beast of burden by which political demagogues rode into power. Participation in political life would not be easy for Negroes, this they knew. But the outlook was not wholly bleak. The colored people would have to bear the brunt of the battle themselves, but they knew there were some whites, men of influence, if small in number, upon whom they could count. And best of all, politics and political parties were in a state of flux after 1840, and out of the new equilibrium might come a new niche for the Negro. Amid the confusion of parties and the death struggle of old political dynasties, wrote J.W. Loguen to Frederick Douglass in the spring of 1855, we cannot fail to accomplish much with proper exertion. The Negro seeking to strike at slavery through political action operated on both state and national levels. He had to win the ballot in his own commonwealth and then to support the political party best serving his interests in the Congress and, if possible, at the White House. It was the first of these steps that was crucial and difficult, to wipe out the state's legal requirement that the ballot be conferred upon whites only 
or that Negroes meet special qualifications. Negroes in New York had faced the strings-attached problem since 1821, when a state constitutional convention decreed that before a Negro could vote, he had to own $250 worth of landed property. The convention, and subsequently the voters, ignored a petition of protest from 50 Negroes, 20 of whom could write their own names. In 1826, the state legislature added to the vexation of the Negroes by voting to retain the property proviso. With the rise of the militant abolitionist movement, the colored people throughout the state initiated a drum fire against the restriction. In February 1837, the Negroes of New York City, led by such abolitionist figures as Philip A. Bell, Samuel E. Cornish, Thomas Downing, Thomas L. Jennings, Thomas Van Rensselaer, and Henry Sipkins, held a meeting at which they drafted a petition to the state legislature to remove the Negro suffrage restriction. After the meeting, the petition was kept at Phoenix Hall for three days in order to run up the number of signatures. At the end of this period of grace, the document bore 620 names, 365 of them in the signer's own handwriting, one of which read, Independence Roberts, born on the 4th of July, 1776, in Philadelphia. Placed in a double envelope, the petition was taken to Albany by a special messenger and delivered in person to the mail guard at the State House. Reaching the legislature at the same time were similar petitions from Negroes in Oswego and Genesee counties and Albany. The legislature proved unresponsive, thus bringing upon itself the condemnation of a monster meeting of Negro young men in New York City on August 21, 1837, with speeches by Timothy Seaman, John J. Zwill, Henry Highland Garnett, and George T. Downing. The meeting authorized Charles B. Ray and Philip A. Bell to visit Negroes throughout the state, urging them to deluge the legislature with petitions to abrogate the property requirement for Negro voting. The silence of the legislature did not crush the Negroes, since they had decided that if one petition failed, another would be presented. This drafting of petition after petition was the avowed object of the Association for the Political Improvement of the People of Color, formed in New York in July 1838. Two months later, the Association sent a supply of blank petitions to Utica for distribution at the New York State Anti-Slavery Society. With young Alexander Crummel as one of the secretaries at the Utica meeting and Theodore S. Wright as one of the featured speakers, the association felt that the petitions would not lack signers. In the following year, the association held an August 1st meeting in New York City, at which petitions were circulated before and after the oration by Alexander Crummel. In the summer of 1840, the Negroes held a statewide convention at Albany, based on the proposition that political disenfranchisement is becoming more and more odious. With Austin Stewart as president and William H. Topp, Charles L. Reason, and H. H. Garnett as secretaries, the convention drew up an address to the colored people of the Commonwealth calling upon them to press for the ballot. Let every man send in his remonstrance. Let petitions be scattered in every quarter. But if the colored people were aroused, the white voters of the state were indifferent 
making no effort to remove the property proviso for Negroes. With the emergence of the Liberty Party in the 1840s, it was inevitable that the equal suffrage issue would come before the Constitutional Convention of 1846. This body referred to the question to the electorate, with results that were hardly surprising. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 3, Side 2. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. No one who sold ardent spirits could be a member of the society, which urged the young men of the land to abstain from every fluid that had a tendency in the least degree to intoxicate. A convention of Negroes of Maine and New Hampshire, held at Portland in 1849, condemned the liquor traffic. Of all the Negroes in the United States, those in Connecticut were unrivaled in their support of the war against strong drink. The Temperance Society of the People of Color of New Haven, founded in 1829, was a pioneer among Negroes. The addresses given at its meetings were sent to the abolitionist weeklies. In 1833, the Negroes of Middletown organized the Home Temperance Society, with Jehiel C. Beeman as president and his son Amos as secretary. A year later, Hartford had two Negro temperance societies, one of them for juveniles. To the senior Beeman went the credit for organizing the Connecticut State Temperance Society of Colored People, which took place at Middletown in May 1836. A year later, at its meeting held in Norwich, the society reported a membership of 350. J.C. Beeman, the president, became in 1838 the general agent also, periodically visiting the major cities. Connecticut alone in New England had an effective statewide temperance organization among Negroes. But local societies sprang up in such cities as Providence, Pittsfield, and New Bedford. Boston, like the much smaller Lenox, had both a men's and a women's society the latter with Jane Putnam as president and Susan Paul as secretary. Membership in Boston spurted in April 1833 when 114 admirers of William Lloyd Garrison took the Cold Water Pledge as a farewell tribute to him just prior to his sailing for England. Of the Middle Atlantic states, New York and Pennsylvania led in temperance activity among Negroes. In New York State, as elsewhere, black abolitionists furnished the leadership in the movement. The New York City Temperance Society, founded in 1829, was assured by Samuel E. Cornish that a glass of water and a biscuit would answer the purpose of politeness. In the fall of 1831, 
the Society's agents held meetings with church congregations, signing up 39 pledgees at the First Colored Presbyterian Church, 40 at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and 119 at the Zion Methodist Church. In 1834, the four officers were familiar figures in anti-slavery work. Theodore S. Wright, Philip A. Bell, Charles B. Ray, and David Ruggles. Negro temperance work in upstate New York followed a similar pattern of leadership. Schenectady Negroes formed a temperance society in May 1836, following an address by the white reformer Garrett Smith. At Buffalo in the spring of 1842, William Wells Brown organized the Union Total Abstinence Society with 215 members and remained its president for three years. Another Negro abolitionist, Stephen Myers, acted in 1842 and 1843 as agent for the Temperance Weekly, the Northern Star, and Freeman's Advocate. One of the places at which he spoke, Lee, Massachusetts, named its Temperance Society after him. The meeting had been held in the town hall of Lee, with many whites present, and with twenty persons signing the pledge. In one town, if not in others, Myers served two masters, lecturing one night on temperance and another night on anti-slavery. Pennsylvania Negroes had two temperance societies by 1834, one in Pittsburgh and the other in Philadelphia, the latter increasing its number of societies to four in 1837. In this state, the women were particularly active in the movement, Pittsburgh's temperance society being made up of both sexes, the Daughters of Temperance had 14 unions in the state, numbering a total membership of 1,500. In November 1848, two of the five Philadelphia unions held a joint meeting at the Wesley Methodist Church, at which 200 women were dressed in full regalia, along with a bevy of cold water girls in white. The two speakers were abolitionists J.C. Beeman and Henry Highland Garnet. The latter, after whom one of the unions had been named, was introduced as Apostle of Liberty and Temperance. Taking an hour and a half, Garnet portrayed the terrible effects of alcohol and labored to allure the drunkard to the path of soberness and peace. In proportion to their numbers, the Negroes in Cincinnati were unique in their temperance zeal. In 1840, over one quarter of the city's colored population belonged to either the Adult Society of 450 members or the youth branch numbering 180. Negro opposition made it impossible for a Negro to sell intoxicating drinks openly. Here again, much of the Negro temperance sentiment was abolitionist-inspired. In the mid-thirties, Cincinnati's Negroes had been deeply influenced by Theodore D. Weld and other Lane Seminary students with abolitionist leanings who had done welfare work in colored neighborhoods. In other Ohio communities, the tie between abolition and Negro temperance was even more evident. On an April Sunday in 1849, the Negroes of Salem held a mass temperance rally in the morning, followed by an anti-slavery meeting in the afternoon, shifting from one to the other with no change of personnel or mood. Three months later, the Negroes at Hanover held a mass meeting for the twofold purpose of advocating temperance and slave emancipation. At a statewide convention held at Columbus in January 1853, which went on record as favoring a prohibition law like that of Maine, the featured speaker was abolitionist John Mercer Langston, 
The temperance movement among Negroes was a compound of failure and success. Its effectiveness was diminished by a lack of follow-up and by the prevalence of Jim Crow practices within the organized movement. Like the colored convention effort, the temperance crusade among Negroes was stronger on planning than on performance. Following the periodic meetings, whether annually, quarterly, or monthly, a hibernation stage set in, with very little activity until the next coming together. There were no agents outside of J.C. Beeman and Stephen Myers. The state societies in Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey were little more than rosters of officers, although on one occasion, at Hudson in August 1845, the Delavan State Temperance Union of New York drew an audience of nearly 3,000. A regional organization with headquarters in Boston, the New England Temperance Society of People of Color, founded in 1835, ran its course in three years. A later effort at regional organization, the state's Delavan Union Temperance Society of Colored People, founded in 1845, proved to be of shorter duration and lesser importance. Temperance work among Negroes was hampered by the attitude of many white prohibitionists who frowned upon Negro membership in their organizations. Negroes would have attended a state temperance convention at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in March 1835, had they not assumed that their presence would be considered objectionable, wrote William Whipper in a letter to its president. Reform organizations that were national in their reach always faced the problem of Southern reaction to Negro membership. More often than not, this problem was settled to the satisfaction of the South. There were a few instances of a cooperative relationship with Negroes. The Sons of Temperance, which had become nationwide in 1844, established a Negro local in New York in 1846 and one in Cincinnati in 1848. It was in the latter year that the Sons reached their high point relative to Negroes, appointing Charles H. Langston as deputy most worthy patriarch for the West, with full powers to establish divisions and grant charters west of the Alleghenies. The Cadets of Temperance, a national organization, sporadically granted charters to groups of colored boys. For some five years, from 1848 to 1853, Frederick Douglass was active in temperance work in upstate New York. In March 1848, he was guest lecturer at the Rochester Temperance Society with a generous sprinkling of Negroes in the audience. Along with William Allen, he attended the organization meeting of the Women's State Temperance Convention in 1852 at Rochester. A year later, he was present at the first meeting of the Women's State Temperance Society, seconding a resolution that commended the legislature for limiting the number of liquor licenses. After 1853, Douglas grew cool to the organized temperance movement, in part because the woman's rightists with whom he had worked lost control of the statewide organization. But by 1853, as Douglas was only too well aware, the pattern of segregation had been firmly established in the organized temperance movement. The Sons of Temperance no longer granted charters to Negroes or admitted them to membership. When the branch at Cortland, New York, admitted Samuel Ringgold Ward, it was ordered to expel him or have its charter annulled. The officers of the Cortland Division, members of Ward's all-white congregation, 
stood by him and voted their charter back to the New York Division. The action of the National Division in barring Negroes did not sit well with some of the subordinate branches. Rhode Island's division protested the order, and the Massachusetts Division threatened to defy it, maintaining that the subordinate divisions had the right to admit members without regard to color. In 1850, the Grand Division of New England went on record as condemning the National Division's no-Negroes policy. In Ohio, the Ashland County Division voted to disband in protest against the color bar, and the members of the Pollard Division declared that such a restrictive policy was tantamount to saying to the colored man, Our doors are closed against you. Some whites withdrew from the Sons of Temperance, but the latter, with one eye fixed on the South, was hardly in a position to refocus its sights. If Negro temperance advocates were ignored by white fellow prohibitionists, they ran the risk of causing an overreaction in whites who were wet, particularly the rum cellar and grog shop owner. At Philadelphia on August 1, 1842, the Moyamensing Temperance Society attempted to hold a festival and procession, some 1,200 marchers assembling with banners. Before the parade could get underway, a mob collected, spurred on by the enemies of temperance. Dispersing the paraders and tearing their flags, the rioters then put the torch to the Smith Beneficial Hall and the Second Colored Presbyterian Church. The firemen threw no water on the burning building, lest, they said, it bring the fury of the horde upon them. The sheriff and his men put in an appearance, but soon they were retreating before the mob, finally breaking into a full run. It was a bad night for the Negroes, some of them fleeing to New Jersey and others taking asylum in the police station. To crown it all, the brick building that had been used by Negroes as a temperance hall was ordered torn down by the legal authorities, who claimed that it might incite the rioters to renewed activity. Despite its setbacks, the temperance crusade among Negroes was certainly as productive as it was among Americans on the whole. In an address to New York Negroes in 1837, S.S. Jocelyn deplored the plethora of porterhouses in the city, many of them kept by Negroes and still more patronized by them. Yet, he added, intemperance among Negroes was not high proportionally. Joshua Levitt held a similar view about the Negroes in Washington. Temperance had done a good deal for them after seven years, he wrote in 1841, much more than among the whites in the same grade of employment. At upper-class social affairs among Negroes in Philadelphia, the standard drink was lemonade, or some pleasant and wholesome syrup commingled with water. Of the 2,200 Negro seamen who sailed out of New York during 1846, 400 stayed at temperance boarding houses run by the American Seamen's Friends Society. Individual Negroes, invariably of abolitionist bent, lent their influence to the temperance crusade. The effect of such a zealous temperance advocate as Daniel A. Payne would be hard to measure. Churches and churchgoers in towns and boroughs within his ecclesiastical jurisdiction were constantly urged to form temperance societies. Unlike most others in the business, David Ruggles refused to handle spirituous liquors in the grocery store he ran in New York in the early 1830s. Robert Fortin, who allegedly never drank a glass of liquor in his life, 
insisted that the twenty-five workers in his shipyard be non-drinkers. Unlike many employers who would settle for on-the-job abstinence, Fortin called for nothing less than teetotalism from his workers. In a long letter describing the free Negroes in Washington, D.C. in 1842, Charles T. Torrey attributed their progress to the influence of the abolition movement. A dedicated abolitionist who would later give his life for the slave, Torrey may have been seeing what he wanted to see. But whether Negro self-help in Washington or elsewhere was rooted in abolitionism, the two impulses inevitably converged. Negro self-help strengthened the argument of the abolitionists while simultaneously furnishing the movement with more effective workers. Mutual aid societies were designed to protect their members from indigency, helping them in sickness or distress. A Negro family, no matter how poor, was determined that no town hearse would ever drive to its door. The Sons of the African Society, formed in Boston in 1798, gave as their purpose the mutual benefit of each other, behaving at the same time as true and faithful citizens of the commonwealth in which we live. It pledged its members to attend the sick, to bury a member decently if he had not left enough money for his funeral, to help the widow and children, and to watch over one another in spiritual concerns. Ten years later, the New York African Society for Mutual Relief was incorporated with young Henry Sipkins as secretary. To the regular functions of such a society, it added an annual parade. The advent of the new abolitionists coincided with and doubtless stimulated an increase in Negro self-help organizations. In 1827, at Chillicothe, with Lewis Woodson presiding, an African Educational and Benevolent Society was formed. A year later, Providence Negroes took a similar step, and in 1831, at New Haven, the Peace and Benevolent Society of African Americans came into existence. But it was Philadelphia that outstripped all other cities, nearly one-half of its adult Negro population holding membership in mutual aid societies in the 1840s. In 1838, the city could count 80 such organizations with an average membership of 93. Ten years later, the roster of mutual benefit societies had risen to 106, comparing most favorably with the total of 119 such groups in the entire state of New York in 1844. In Philadelphia, as elsewhere, the participating members paid dues ranging from $3 to $5 a year, collected weekly or monthly. Persons of affluence often belonged to two or more societies at the same time. Like other cities, Philadelphia had its Dorcas Society, a woman's organization to help the poor and bearing the name of a biblical character of good deeds. The Philadelphia group distributed groceries, clothing, and small sums of money. Some groups, like the African Dorcas Society of New York, concentrated on clothing for poor children, particularly those going to school. In 1828, the Society provided 232 garments, including hats and shoes, for 123 boys and girls. The Harrisburg Dorcas Society stipulated that none of its food, clothing, or fuel was to go to drunkards, kidnappers, betrayers, and base idle persons. The Dorcas Society of Buffalo, holding that it is sometimes more blessed to receive than to give, occasionally gathered to listen to an address by an invited guest.
Self-help among Negroes was closely related to self-improvement, the acquisition of useful knowledge, and the cultivation of the intellect. A young men's organization in Brooklyn bore the name Esmeralda Benevolent and Literary Club, indicating its dual purpose to combine material assistance and mental outreach. To many Negroes, life was something more than a pigfoot and a bottle of beer. The self-improvement impulse among Negroes stemmed in part from the general upward and onward spirit so characteristic of American society. But self-improvement among Negroes also had anti-slavery antecedents, for its advocates viewed it as a means of refuting the charge of racial inferiority while at the same time gladdening the hearts of the reformers. An evidence of this close bond between abolitionism and Negro self-improvement was furnished by the American Moral Reform Society, which, at its first meeting, pledged itself to make one common cause with the American Anti-Slavery Society. The close affinity between abolitionism and Negro improvement was illustrated by an interracial group in Boone County, Indiana, which organized a society for the moral and literary advancement of the Negro, and then proceeded to organize an anti-slavery society, thus becoming two societies with an identical membership. The leadership of Negro self-improvement organizations was invariably of abolitionist hue. The first slate of officers of the Phoenix Society of New York, founded in 1833, included Christopher Rush, Thomas L. Jennings, Theodore S. Wright, Peter Vogelsang, and White Arthur Tappan. The board of directors bore names familiar in reform circles, Samuel Hardenberg, Peter Williams, Henry Sipkins, and Boston Crummel, father of Alexander Crummel. The abolitionist Nathaniel Paul was the first president of the Union Society of Albany for the improvement of the colored people in morals, education, and mechanic arts, and Daniel A. Payne held a similar first presidency of the Troy Mental and Moral Improvement Association. Hosea Easton was the presiding officer of the Hartford Literary and Religious Institution upon its founding in 1834. Most of the self-improvement societies sponsored a series of public lectures, from five to twenty-one a season. Open to the public, these lectures were generally free of charge, as in the case of the Philadelphia Library Company, but sometimes not as in the case of the Adelphic Union Association of Boston, which charged a modest 50 cents for a single ticket for the entire series and 75 cents for a combination ticket admitting a man and a woman. For its series of weekly lectures, the Philomathian Society of New York charged $2.50 for a season ticket and 12 and a half cents for a single lecture. The guest lecturers at Negro Self-Improvement Societies generally included a good sampling of abolitionists. Edmund Quincy opened the season series for the Adelphic Union in 1838, subsequently mailing a copy to the officers at their request to have it published. During the 1840 season, the Union's roster of speakers included abolitionists Theodore Parker, Samuel J. May, Henry I. Bowditch, John Pierpont, William Lloyd Garrison, James Freeman Clark, and, for a return appearance, Edmund Quincy. The Adelphic Union opened its 1846 series with the abolitionist politicians John P. Hale and Charles Sumner. The lecture topics, particularly those in the New York forums, were not confined to political and social issues, but included chemistry, geography, logic, and organs of sense. <laughs>
Such broad topical coverage was especially valuable in those cities in which Negroes were barred from attending lectures other than those sponsored by themselves. Most of the self-improvement societies provided opportunities for active participation by the members. A lecture would often be followed by a general discussion. Some societies, particularly those made up of young men, inclined toward oratory and declamation, with some of the speakers delivering original pieces. Others made use of the English essayists and poets, on one occasion Ransom F. Wake reading Dryden's Alexander's Feast. Some societies staged debates. At its meeting in December 1842, the Philomathian Society of Albany, with abolitionist William H. Topp presiding, listened to the pros and cons of the question, Is the human mind limited? Some of the societies had libraries of their own. Upon organizing in January 1833, the Philadelphia Library Company of Colored Persons issued a public notice appealing for books or for money to buy them. The letter of solicitation carried the names of abolitionists Robert Purvis, Frederick A. Hinton, and Junius C. Morell. By 1840, the library had 600 volumes, acquired in part by the monthly dues of 25 cents a member. The San Francisco Athenaeum and Literary Association, whose members were required to be moral and intelligent, had a library of 800 volumes in 1854. The 16 colored library societies in New York State in 1844 had libraries whose holdings ranged from 100 to 1400 volumes. The Adelphic Union of Boston, a bit better off than the others, sent its duplicate books to newly organized libraries. Many of the libraries stocked newspapers and periodicals, particularly those of abolitionist hue. Some libraries were able to announce a set schedule of opening and closing hours. The Phoenix Society of New York, for example, operating from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 9 at night on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Circulating libraries asked that the borrowed books be returned in a week's time. To use a Negro reading room required no fee. The New York Vigilance Committee assessed its members $2.75 a year for the upkeep of its reading room, but strangers were admitted free of charge. These libraries were open to the public, and this meant that whites were welcome, a policy which bore an implied criticism of libraries that excluded Negroes, which most of them did. There was only one society made up of both sexes, the Gilbert Lyceum of Philadelphia, founded in 1841, with Jacob C. White as president and Grace Douglas as treasurer. The all-male Negro self-improvement groups, however, did not exclude women from their reading rooms or from attending meetings open to non-members. But such partial acceptance was hardly satisfactory to all concerned, and as a consequence a half-dozen women's societies were started. Leading the way in 1831 was the Female Literary Association of Philadelphia, to be joined the following year by the African-American Female Intelligence Society of Boston. But the Philadelphia women were not to be outstripped, forming two additional societies in the 1830s, the Minerva Literary Society and the Edgeworth Society. And the last of the antebellum women's societies as the first was founded in Philadelphia, 
the Sarah M. Douglas Literary Circle, which held its first meeting on September 22, 1859. These literary societies sent reports of their proceedings, along with examples of their creative writings, to the abolitionist press. Juvenile self-improvement societies among Negroes were few in number, doubtless because they were in competition with the schools, public and private. The strongest of these fewer than a half-dozen groups was the Garrison Literary and Benevolent Society of New York, founded in 1834 and made up of males from four to twenty years of age. The society held its weekly Wednesday afternoon meeting in the classroom of a public school until the school trustees decreed that an organization that bore the controversial name of Garrison could not be permitted to use its facilities. Led by Master Henry Highland Garnet and shouting, Garrison, Garrison, Garrison forever, the boys voted against changing the name of their society. Fortunately for them, the Philomathian Society, through Philip A. Bell, offered the use of its hall without charge. Negro self-improvement organizations strengthened the abolitionist effort, although admittedly to an extent not open to scientific measurement. Many of the self-improvement societies were influenced by the anti-slavery struggle, writes a present-day authority, and were in the main anti-slavery societies until around 1857, when they took on a more definite literary aspect. There were at least 50 such organizations. Some were short-lived, like the Saramento Young Men's Musical and Literary Society, reflecting the incurable optimism of Americans, black and white. Some were small. J. McCune Smith described the New York Literary Union as not being large, but as having at least a president and a secretary who were not the same person. By contrast, the Philadelphia Library Company had a roll call of 150. In some cases, the membership count may have been larger if there had been no admission fee, generally of $1. But a number count was not the full measure of the impact of these societies. They raised the aspirations of their own members. They lent support to the abolitionist cause, and to non-joiners, white or black, friend or disparager, they furnished an evidence of black enterprise in a somewhat unexpected quarter. Negro self-help was expressed in the movement for more and better schools. This effort, too, bore an abolitionist stamp inasmuch as school training would demonstrate that the Negro was capable of improvement and hence not doomed by innate inferiority to be a slave perpetually. In 1827, there was a total of ten Negro schools, primary and grammar, in five cities, Portland, Boston, New Haven, New York, and Philadelphia. In the early 1830s, with the simultaneous emergence of the colored convention movement and the new type abolitionists, the Negro school effort received much more attention. In the summer of 1831, Garrison, S.S. Jocelyn, and Arthur Tappan conceived of forming a Negro manual labor college at New Haven, Connecticut. Manual labor schools combined a curriculum of classical studies with useful physical labor in the shop or on the farm. Traveling to Philadelphia, the three abolitionists broached the idea to the delegates at the Colored Convention, mentioning New Haven as the proposed site. The delegates, laboring under the impression that the New Havenites were friendly, pious, generous, and humane, voted their approach enthusiastically, 
adding, however, that the trustee board of the proposed college should have a Negro majority. As a follow-up, the convention appointed a so-called committee for superintending the application for funds for the College for Colored Youth, composed of Philip A. Bell, Boston Crummel, Peter Vogelsang, Peter Williams, and restaurateur Thomas Downing, already famed for his oyster house. The proposed college got no further. The mayor of New Haven, Dennis Kimberly, strongly opposed it, and his stand was supported by a town meeting which voted to resist the establishment of the proposed college in this place by every lawful means. The school was denounced as a threat to the prosperity of Yale and the other educational institutions in the city. The belief was widespread that the proposed Negro school would be an abolitionist auxiliary or front. One of the reasons given for the hostility to the proposed school was its designation as a college, which bore the implications of high achievement by Negroes and their resultant pressing for social equality. But this explanation could hardly hold true for the school which Prudence Crandall proposed to establish for young ladies and little misses of color two years later in nearby Canterbury. Miss Crandall had announced this step after she had lost practically all of the students from her boarding school following the admission of a Negro, 17-year-old Sarah Harris. Canterbury, like New Haven, called a town meeting at which its leading citizen, Andrew T. Judson, strongly denounced Miss Crandall and her school. The meeting was adjourned before abolitionists Samuel J. May and Arnold Buffin could get the floor for a rebuttal. Judson and his numerous supporters urged the state legislature, then in session, to enact a law prohibiting any school from instructing Negroes who were not inhabitants of the state. Miss Crandall held out for 16 months after the passage of the law, but in September 1834 she closed the school and quit the state. A similar fate was in store for abolitionist-sponsored Noyes Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, which in 1834 announced itself as open to youth of good character without distinction as to color. Twenty-eight whites and fourteen Negroes studied together for a year, while the townspeople grew increasingly restive. A public meeting was convoked in the summer of 1835, which decreed that the academy should be physically transplanted. On August 10th, some 300 men with 90 to 100 oxen dragged the building away, leaving it in ruins. These setbacks were dismaying to the abolitionists, but they could take comfort when they looked elsewhere. However abortive at New Haven, Canterbury, and Canaan, education for Negroes spurred by their zeal had been given a fresh impetus. The spirit of self-help took on another form, with Negroes themselves assuming the task of providing additional schools. Again, the Negroes who led the way were abolitionist activists. In January 1832, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes established the African Education Society with John B. Vachon as president and Lewis Woodson as secretary. The school, its personnel all Negro, was attended by many of the respectable colored people of the city. During the same year, John Malvin organized the School Education Society in Cleveland, the costs to be borne by subscriptions and appeals. In 1836, Providence Negroes founded the New England Union Academy with tuition of $3 a quarter. 
New York Negroes established the Phoenix High School in 1836, with Theodore S. Wright as president, Dr. John Brown as secretary, and Samuel Cornish and David Ruggles as solicitors. Philadelphia in the mid-30s had ten self-supporting colored schools. Cincinnati, in 1838, had two Negro schools deriving no aid from their white neighbors. In 1857, Wilmington, Delaware, had two schools supported by Negroes with considerable assistance from Quaker Thomas Garrett, who purchased the land site and hired the building contractor. For six years, 1854 to 1860, San Francisco Negroes supported a one-teacher school, touching a total of some 250 students. Baltimore, which outstripped any other city in free Negro population, had 15 colored schools in 1859, every one of them self-sustaining. These efforts by Negroes themselves were supplemented by white individuals or groups. In Boston, in 1815, the merchant Abile Smith left an endowment of $4,000 for the Negro school held in the basement of the African Baptist Church. The Quaker silversmith, Richard Humphreys, left $10,000 in 1832 for the founding of a school for Negroes, which emerged five years later as the Institute for Colored Youth. In 1855, Homer Treat of Litchfield County in Connecticut left $4,000 for the founding of a colored school or for assisting needy Negro students, whichever the trustees of the fund decided. Germain W. Loguen was one of the school fund executors named in Treat's will. In 1840, the Ohio Ladies' Society for the Education of Free People of Color was founded at Massillon, its purpose to elevate the Negro and thus undercut the opposition to the abolitionist movement. The founders announced a second compelling motive. Long enough, surely, have we received the taxes of the colored man to help educate poor white children, and now let us, as a band of sisters, unite in vigorous efforts to repair their wrongs. In some of the schools conducted by this society, the salaries of the teachers were paid by the Ohio Female Anti-Slavery Society. The clergyman, Charles Avery, gave an initial donation of $25,000 in 1849 to found a college bearing his name at Allegheny, Pennsylvania, to train young Negroes for teaching and the ministry. Serving on the board of trustees was the abolitionist John Peck. In 1852, the General Conference of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, meeting in New York, had high words of praise for Avery, who was present. Later that year, a more concrete expression of Negro esteem came to Avery from Robert S. Duncanson, who gave him a painting, The Garden of Eden, for which the struggling artist had been offered $800. Privately supported colored schools, whether financed by Negroes themselves or by their supporters, were obviously not the total answer to the question of educational need in a day when publicly supported schools had become widespread throughout the North. Poor as a group and taxed like everyone else, Negroes saw no reason for their not benefiting like others from the public school system. Gradually, the states began to assume a grudging responsibility for the education of their Negro children. Schools attended by Negroes were all colored in student body and predominantly so in teaching staff. Such schools were invariably feebly supported in comparison with their white counterparts. 
the New York Board of Education, for example, spending $1,600,000 for sites and buildings for white pupils over a 20-year period, while spending only $1,000 for such facilities for colored students, a ratio of 1 to 1,600, although the school population ratio was 1 to 40. But it was not their feeble support alone that made segregated schools a prime target of Negroes and abolitionists. These challengers proclaimed that racially separate schools were relics of slavery, fostering prejudice and discrimination. In Massachusetts alone did the protesters crack the segregated school system, with Boston providing the most spectacular victory, although not the first. In the 1840s, the Negro School in Boston, named after early benefactor Abile Smith and supported by the city after 1820, came under increasing attack, led by Negroes and abolitionists. In 1846, a petition signed by 86 Negroes protested the segregated school, terming it insulting. The primary school committee thought otherwise, defending the all-Negro composition of the Smith School. However, two members of the committee, Henry I. Bowditch and Edmund Quincy, submitted a blistering minority report, to which they appended a statement by an even more ardent abolitionist, Wendell Phillips, castigating the city solicitor for upholding the legality of a Jim Crow school. Three years later, another petition, this one bearing 202 signatures and characterizing the Smith School as a great public nuisance, was laid before the primary school committee. Again, rejection soon followed. Negroes then turned to the courts, Benjamin Roberts bringing suit in the name of his young daughter, Sarah, alleging that she had to pass five other schools before she could reach the one for Negroes. Taking the case for the plaintiff was Charles Sumner, assisted by a young Negro, Robert Morris. Despite Sumner's learned plea, the court upheld the school committee. But its victory was but a staying action. The airing given to the case had its effect on public opinion. Negroes, led by William C. Nell, kept up a drum fire against the school, holding indignation meetings and presenting numerously signed resolutions at abolitionist gatherings. The state legislature proved more responsive than the courts or the school board. Noting that Boston lagged behind the other chief cities in the state, the legislature in April 1855 prohibited the exclusion of any child from any school because of race, color, or religion. When the new school year began on September 3, 1855, a group of abolitionists, headed by William C. Nell, went from one schoolhouse to another to see the new policy in operation. There was no disturbance of any kind, the school committee having acted in good faith despite their earlier opposition. Once the schools were integrated, the Negroes held a meeting of celebration, also integrated. The person honored at the happy occasion was William C. Nell, who received a gold watch along with verbal bouquets from Lewis Hayden, physician John V. DeGrasse, attorneys Robert Morris and John S. Rock, as well as Garrison, Phillips, and Charles W. Stack. Because she had sustained an accident, Harriet Beecher Stowe could not be present, but she sent Nell an autographed copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. At this joyous celebration, there was little mention of the Smith Colored School, which indeed had already closed its doors for lack of pupils. The admission of Negroes to white colleges, 
no Negro college was incorporated until 1854, was an abolitionist concern, as might be expected. White reformers were highly indignant that some black co-workers had been denied admission to colleges. Thomas Paul, Sr. by Brown, Charles B. Ray and Amos G. Beeman by Wesleyan, and J. McCune Smith by both Columbia and Geneva. At the annual meeting of the New England Anti-Slavery Society in 1836 at Boston, a resolution was passed recommending that abolitionists support Oneida Institute because it was the only literary institution east of Ohio which officially welcomed Negroes. Other colleges had no stated policy barring Negroes, but, as an abolitionist put it, they encouraged a prejudice which created an atmosphere in which a colored student could not live. Colleges feared that if they enrolled Negroes, they would lose white students, particularly from the South. Oneida, located at Whitesboro near Utica, was not the first college to admit Negroes. In August 1826 of the year in which Oneida was founded, Amherst graduated Edward Jones, and two weeks later, Bowdoin conferred a degree upon John B. Russworm. This book is continued on cassette four, side one.